Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest Mark Leverage podcast, this one being for the two-month period, December 23 to January 24. Appreciate you joining me. Now, in the last podcast of a couple of months ago, I mentioned in passing about Richard Young's reintroduction of the Magician's podcast. And I'd signed up for it, and I find it a very interesting listen, and I've listened to lots of the both the um, the back interviews that are, that are available to subscribers, but also a lot of the new stuff. And one of the recent interviews that he did was with Craig Petty. Now, mo- anybody who's been in Magic uh, at all will, I'm sure, recognise the name Craig Petty. He's been around for quite a long time now. In fact, I can remember when he was a teenager, he used to often buy my, my products. And uh, if I went to an IBM convention or a Blackpool convention, he would often spend quite a lot of time standing at at the stand talking to me and and buying stuff from me. So I've known him a long time. And at his own admission, as was clear from the interview that Richard Young did with him, he's had a bit of a checkered career so far in magic. He's one minute he's been on the crest of a wave and hugely popular. Then through a couple of uh, ill-timed misjudgments, uh, he sort of fell out of favour and was victim of quite a lot of online abuse and various other things, which caused him to basically back out of magic, certainly the um, the magic that magicians themselves, and the places that magicians themselves frequented, and just got on with his own thing. But after lockdown, when he, or in fact during lockdown, when he decided to start up his magic TV, his online TV, huge what is now a huge database of video interviews and various other things he's back in the public domain again and doing very well it would appear anyway the reason i mention him is because one of the things that in the discussion with richard young that that he mentioned was that um the the question of hype and the way that a lot of magic tricks are seem to be hugely hyped in order to sell them these days now i, I mentioned hype myself back in, I think it was the August-September podcast, and I was mentioning hype with in relation to magic shows, where the, 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 the blurb that goes with the publicity for it sometimes uses extreme language, and you wonder whether, quite frankly, the language is promising something that the show itself can never deliver. But of course, the same is very true of certain manufacturers when, in the way they market their tricks, both either with the videos or with the written text. And Craig had an interesting viewpoint about this. Well, I thought it was interesting. He said, I have no problem with hype, he said. It can be as extreme as you, as you like, because basically hype is just marketing. And I thought, that's interesting. Hype is just marketing. And at first I thought, if that, is that true? Is hype just marketing? Actually, it isn't, is it? Because surely the meaning of the word hyperbole, hype, is that it's an extreme form of marketing. And by definition, I I would suggest, it means it's where it goes over the top. It's not just bigging something up a bit. It's not just presenting, let's say, a marketed item in its best possible light and extolling in enthusiastic terms the advantages of a magician buying and then using the trick. Hype, certainly in my vocabulary anyway, Hype means it goes too far and it starts making claims that simply cannot be lived up to by the reality of what the product is. 
So to say that hype is just marketing, I would suggest it is probably not correct, is it? I mean, you can be enthusiastic and Craig says he likes it because he, he thinks anybody who's trying to market a trick needs to push it. Yes, of course, if you want to have big sales, then the more you can push it. But there, there's a difference surely between being enthusiastic, being really uh, in people's face to a certain extent in publicity, but or making claims, hyping it and making claims that actually aren't either aren't true or are really way beyond the reality. Even if they are partly true, they're still way beyond the reality of the actual product itself. And I don't think that hype is a good way to go for marketing because I think it leads to disappointment in purchasers. You know, we magicians, when we buy stuff, we get excited about our purchases. Of course we do. And we want it to be all wonderful. But if our expectations are raised to unreasonable levels, then disappointment is more likely to set in than it is if the actual description or the video gives a more realistic um, representation of what the effect or what the product actually is. Anyway, so that was an interesting thing. And, um, and I do recommend Richard Young's um, Magicians Podcast Network to you. you. You do have to pay. I think it's nine ninety five if you go directly th through something. Uh, well, it depends which of the... If you go through iTunes, it's more expensive than it is if you go through some of the others. But it's around about £10 a month and it's very much worth your while. I think it's probably true to say that no matter what type of... A magician you are and what type of shows you do there are going to be challenges so whether you're a stage or cabaret magician a children's entertainer a mentalist or a strolling or table hopping magician each of these different types of performance brings with it things that you have to sort out things that you have to master in order to be really good at it now one of the most difficult ones i think is to be a strolling magician where you're mix and mingling with people in an informal situation. And the reason I say this is the most difficult is not in necessarily in terms of the actual magic itself, but really more with the number of different things that you're having to cope with that are almost extraneous to the performance of the actual tricks, but all the things going on around you. The fluidity of the audience and the um, informality of the performing circumstances are often very, very demanding. And although some shows can be very straightforward and simple, others can be a fantastic challenge. And one of the most difficult ones, I think, um, where strolling magic, and certainly where I use strolling magic, is at trade shows. Now, I don't do lots of trade shows. Uh, I've only done a relatively small number compared to trade show magicians, let's say, in the United States, who perhaps do lots and lots of them. And most of the trade shows that I've done have been relatively small affairs. I've done a few big ones at places like Olympia and places like that. But generally speaking, the trade shows that I've done tend to be smaller affairs, say 100, 150 stands, something like that. Um, local ones, regional events. And one of the most difficult aspects of this, because I use strolling magic, I, I, I don't like to stand right by the stand of the people who have booked me to help them market themselves at, at the event. I like to go up and down the aisles, go to the cafe area. That's my way of doing it. I approach people on behalf of the company I'm employed by and present magic on their behalf. And depending on whether I'm getting leads for them or just raising their profile or promoting a product, whatever it is, I do that on the hoof. And 
the the aspect of that that is the trickiest and the one I want to talk about now is stopping people when they are moving. I remember years ago, the very first time I had an experience of this was when uh, through an agency, I was booked, as I'm sure lots of other magicians at the time were, to go and entertain in a DIY store. I can't even remember which one it was now, but they were doing some sort of weekend promotion and they wanted a magician to go in and walk up and down the aisles and stop people when they came in to buy a tin of paint and basically show them magic. And I found this extremely difficult because people were coming into the DIY store and they were focused on what they wanted to buy. You know, whether it was paint or wallpaper or looking at kitchen units, whatever it was. And the last thing actually that they had in their mind, because they didn't know it was going to happen, was to be accosted in an aisle by a magician trying to show them a card trick. So it was very difficult to get their attention. The other thing was, and something that I, that I learned quite quickly, was you can't stop people if you're not, or at least you can't very easily, if they are walking in the same direction down an aisle as you are. In other words, if you turn down an aisle and up ahead of you, you can see two people walking along and you think you want to go and entertain them. Unless you walk very quickly, which can look a bit odd, and sort of go past them and then turn around and speak to them, which again is a bit startling for them, you, you can't actually get to them because they are walking and you're walking and short of running, it's actually hard to catch them up. The best way, of course, is to, if you see somebody starting to go down an aisle, is to nip down the next aisle, go round the other end, and come back so you're walking towards them. That's the key, I realised fairly quickly. You have to be walking towards them in order to have any chance of stopping them and engaging them in conversation. I mean, even then, at trade shows, when they're, when they're looking around at exhibitor stands or they're, they're going off to a, perhaps to hear a talk or a lecture of some sort, People are not expecting to be stopped necessarily in the aisle by some by a magician, but walking towards them and and engaging them and making eye contact immediately and smiling and as you approach them makes it so much easier to stop them in order to then engage them for a few minutes with some magic. So it's something that I learned very very quickly. But I have to say that the the business of stopping people, at, particularly at as I say business events, is is a, quite an art and being able to make effective use of the very short time that people will usually afford you, unless they're sitting in the cafe area to do an exhibition, then they won't give you very long and you have to get everything that you need to do, both magically and in terms of putting a message across, over very, very quickly. So it's certainly a challenge, as I'm sure you will agree if you've ever tried to do it. The Great Baldini is a magical name that you may or may not have heard of before. Uh, it is in fact the stage name of Bristol-based magician David Hall. And he is a larger-than-life entertainer who, whose character, the Great Baldini, he's having a tremendous amount of success with up and down the country. David is a, a very much uh, an magical enthusiast. He, anything he does, he throws himself wholeheartedly into it. It's really refreshing. And he's, his enthusiasm is, is infectious, quite frankly. If you're around him for any length of time, you find yourself being caught up in his enthusiasm, which is fantastic. Now, he lives in the Totterdown area of Bristol. And there's a venue there. It's a sort of pub come cafe, really, called The Sundial. And for the last few months, 
David has been hiring it on the last Thursday evening of the month and putting on a magic show. And the magic show is called the Totterdown Tricky Thursdays. Totterdown Tricky Thursdays. And uh, it's a, a lovely two-hour show with a gap in the middle for some refreshments in which he's able to showcase either local magicians or sometimes magicians from further away. Now, I've mentioned in this podcast before how a couple of times a year I get together with my three longest standing magical buddies, Stuart Bowie, Chris Payne and Paul Prager. And we usually collect together, usually where Stuart lives, up in Cumbria, and we do three or four days of intense magic. It's, it's wonderful. We explore all sorts of different things, show tricks that we're working on and discuss magical theory and other things too in great depth. And it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to immerse ourselves in the thing that we all love so much. And whereas normally, as I say, we meet in Cumbria, this time, this September, we, we actually met in Bristol. And it happened to coincide with a Totterdown Tricky Thursday evening. So David booked three of us, though it's myself, Stuart Bowie and Chris Payne, to do 15 minutes each for the first half. And then Dan Chard did the whole of the second half. And it was absolutely fantastic. I haven't worked an intimate venue of that nature for quite a while. And it was A, great to be working with other magicians who I know. I mean, that was already made it interesting and fun. But also the venue itself was very intimate. It seated... It seats up up to about 50 people maximum and it was sold out for our night and so there was a lovely atmosphere mainly lay people one or two magicians but mainly lay people and it was an opportunity for not only for the the three of us to to do our core stuff and to enjoy having that that sort of nice atmosphere that the lay people created but also to watch each other and given that we collect together the four of us in order to discuss magic this gave a whole different focus to our meeting in September because we all were getting ready if you like leading up to on the Thursday doing the show and then we're able to afterwards to discuss what had happened and any lessons that were learned from having done it so I do recommend that too if you're in the Bristol area the last Thursday of the of the month he has these shows all different people actually i'm going to be doing it again in uh, doing a whole half in the at the end of march 28th of march but there are as far as i know going to be um third down tricky thursdays every last thursday of every month certainly into the foreseeable future into next year so if you're in that area and you fancy having a good night out get some tickets and come along If you're a commercial close-up magician who works, let's say, in family restaurants where you get families attending for to eat meals, or perhaps you work a lot of weddings, because these days, let's face it, there are going to be children at weddings, and so they become increasingly family-orientated occasions, then one of the situations that you sometimes get, and which I find slightly irritating, is when you walk up to a table where there's a a couple of children and everybody else is are adults and as you approach and they they realize who you are they say oh look kids here's the magician for you there's this assumption and i i'm not quite sure why it is maybe it's a self-defense mechanism on behalf of the adults i'm not sure but there's a kind of an assumption that magic is for children and that the, therefore the adults 
don't need to pay attention or that it's not intended for them in the first place. And depending on how you react to this will depend on what kind of show you do for that group, won't it? I mean, it could be that you decide, well, actually, there are four children here and four adults and they think that the magic is for the children. So I'll aim the magic at the children. I'll do sponge balls for them. I'll do balloon at some balloon animals or whatever. And, and you can target your show at that table just towards the children. But the difficulty with this is if you then want to turn around and go to a table of all adults, if they've seen you entertaining the children only at another table, they may not value what you do so highly. They may not think that you could have anything that's of interest to them as adults. They may assume that you are basically just a children's entertainer and therefore that they, they don't need to have you at their table. So I don't like this, this sort of situation. It, it makes me feel uneasy. I don't mind doing the odd trick for a child at a table or involving a child in an adult show. I mean, sponge balls is, is something that I do involve children in because I, I, it's a routine I've used for both adults and children. So I can do a, a mix of entertaining the adults but involving a child. But to be seen just as a children's entertainer is certainly not an image at an adult event that I actually want to encourage. So I find myself being slightly defensive. So I say, oh look, children, here's a magician for you. I say, well actually the magic is for you, for you adults, but very happy for the children to watch. And then just start. So that it's, they understand right from the word go that yes, the children can watch, but actually the magic is not really aimed specifically at them, it's aimed at the adults. Now by doing it in, in this way, I feel that I sort of keep my credibility at the right level and aimed in the right direction. I'm not going to be the person that they assume is just the children's entertainer. I'm actually the adult entertainer who is adaptable enough to do things with the kiddies as well or let the kiddies watch. And sometimes if I'm concerned that the adult's attention span may not be good enough, they'll, if they think that children are going to be the subject of my magic, they won't even bother to look. I directly talk to and make eye contact with all the adults around the table and I actually initially will freeze out the kids to a certain extent so that they don't get to think that it's just for them. I'm entertaining the adults, may make reference to the children from time to time, but I don't feature them majorly if I can help it. Certainly not initially. And I find by doing that, that then when I go to another table where there aren't any children, then people will accept me readily because they've seen that I've been entertaining the adults and that the adults have been responding favourably. And it's not that I, I, I don't want to entertain, I'm a children's entertainer as well as, a, as an adult entertainer. But I think sometimes trying to get your role established with your audience, I think for me anyway, I find that an important thing to do right from the outset. So there's no confusion as to the reason why I'm there and the type of magic that I'm going to do, the type of humour I'm going to use and, and who the magic is really designed for. And actually, to be honest, children, not very young children perhaps, but certainly children from about six years upwards, if they watch magic on the television, they see adult magic anyway. They don't see specialised children magic unless they're at a children's magic show at a birthday party or something like that, do they? So they're actually quite used to seeing adult magic. And provided that your magic is reasonably visual, I find that children will enjoy it um, as well as, as much as the adults. 
Andy Nyman is one of those performers that I've, I've always had a soft spot for and I've always had a lot of time for him. I think the first time I ever interacted with him meaningfully was when I booked him to do one of my British Close-Up Magic Symposium conventions back in the 90s. And um, Andy was a delight to work with then and, and every time I've seen him since he's turned out to be a really nice person to know. I like the fact that despite his innumerable successes, I mean, he's a, a hugely talented actor and has been in a number of high profile films. He's written plays. He's obviously a top, top mentalist. And he has, of course, for a long, long time, been one of the creative team helping Darren Brown. So his, his whole sort of professional career has been littered with success pretty much from start to finish. And despite that fact, he seems to keep his ego well under wraps, which I find personally a very attractive character trait. Anyway, in more recent times, he's him along with his son Preston, they've been organizing a magic convention in London. The International um, Magic Convention, which took place for many, many years, started by Ron Macmillan, is no more, of course. And so for a little while, there's not really been much uh, going on in the capital apart from the magic circle putting on the occasional event and so Andy and Preston decided just after lockdown that they would put together a special convention for uh, those living in London those who wanted to attend I think they get about a hundred people which is a bit of a, as a sellout and on the occasions when it's taken place it's obviously been extremely successful and really enjoyed and I heard an interview that somebody did with Andy about why they started the convention. And I thought the reason that he gave, if it's true, and I've no reason to assume that it isn't, the reason why that they decided to do it was because he said that at the time, just sort of around lockdown and during lockdown, there was an awful lot of unrest in London, in the magic scene in London, particularly in the magic circle. A lot of um, bitter arguments were going on clashes of personalities and, and all sorts of things. And it was bringing magic into disrepute, quite frankly, because for most of us, in fact, nearly everybody, I would suspect, magic is, it's a hobby, it's a pastime, it's a love. It's not, for some, it's a job as well, but for all of us, it's something that we should be able to relax with and enjoy. And Andy felt that all this backbiting and bitterness that was created with the controversies that were going on in the magic circle at the time had taken away, stripped away all that fun, had stripped away all the, the happiness associated with magic. And it had all become very political with a small p uh, and just not very pleasant. So they, he, him and Preston decided that they, what they would like to do is to try and redress the balance by having an event, uh, a convention in London, where they would try to create a really supportive fun and happy atmosphere and as far as I can judge from the comments that I've that I've seen and people I've I've spoken to and heard say things about the convention it's been very successful in achieving those aims I mean I think it's difficult because you can event anyone can arrange an event well I say anyone no they can't there's lots to it I don't mean it's simple but it's possible with the right motivation and skills and money and all the rest of it and contacts to put on an event. But trying to create one where the people who come 
feel that they're in part of something joyous, something happy. That, that's, that's more of a skill. And trying to manipulate the atmosphere of an event is not straightforward at all. So I'm really, really pleased for Andy and Preston that, that it has gone so well. Um, apparently, they are going to be doing another one next year in 2024, towards the end of the year again. So if you are wondering about what it would be like, go, why not buy some tickets? I think they're probably available already and go along and find out what it's all about and see whether you agree with Andy and Preston that they are helping to put the, the fun and the happiness back into magic. Regular listeners to this podcast may remember that I've mentioned a couple of times this year in the podcast about a new series of trick ebooks that I've been releasing. For the last few years, I've concentrated mainly with my ebooks on producing ones that give advice rather than actual magic tricks. And the Professional Worker series, there are six volumes of that, cover all sorts of different aspects of magic. But one thing it doesn't cover is tricks themselves. So I decided that it would be nice to have a series of ebooks which concentrated just on magic tricks. And so I created a, a series called the Formidable Magic Series. Formidable spelt F-O-U-R because each ebook contains four routines of a particular type. Now, so far, I've released earlier in the year two volumes. Volume one was Formidable Card Magic with four card routines. And the second volume was Formidable Mental Mysteries, which guess what? Has got mental stuff in it. Yes, indeed. And the reason I'm mentioning it is because last month I released volume three in the series. And this is Formidable Coin Creations. Now, the root four routines from here, like, as with the other volumes, these routines are ones that I've not published in a book before and which have been extracted from the archives of eClub Pro. And the four coin routines, the first one is called cash withdrawal, in which um, a coin is signed, dropped into an envelope. Several other coins are placed into a spectator's hand and the coin that's signed vanishes instantly from the envelope and ends up in amongst the ones in the spectator's hand. That's cash withdrawal. Then there's one called magnetic coins, which is a sort of a cut down version of, of, the, of a matrix in which coins jump under, around under cards. But I'm really proud of this routine because I think if you, and all these, incidentally, all of these four routines, if you go to my website and look up Formidable Coin Creations, you can see Dems of all four tricks. But Magnetic Coins is, is lovely because it is very visual and I think fooling way of making coins jump around under cards. So there's that one. Then there's a routine called Loose Change, which uses an Akita box and two coins with colored stickers on and one coin is put into, selected by a spectator, is put into a box, the other under a handkerchief, and the two coins change places. Uh, only two coins are used, and it has a, a clever use, I think, of a, of a particular principle using the handkerchief and a coin, which um, makes the, the whole thing very clean and very convincing. And then the fourth routine is called Seeker Coin. This is where a signed coin vanishes and ends up inside a boxed deck of cards on top of a signed selected card. Now I've had a number of different versions of this. I marketed one years ago called 007 and I've had uh, one called the Acrobatic Coin which was a very um, early one for, of mine which was published in one of my other ebooks. 
But Seeker Coin, I think, is I really like it because it is it, it is so clean. There are a number of subtleties in it. It's not difficult to do, but there are a number of subtleties in it which make it very, very convincing. And the, I think a method that creates the best possible way of doing, for me anyway, of doing this type of trick. So there are no there are no gimmicked coins required to do any of these four routines that's in the uh, formidable coin creations ebook and uh, the price is 12 pounds and you can get it from my website right now and so if you like coin magic i'm sure you'll really enjoy working on these four coin effects so that then is formidable coin creations a new release from mark leverage magic I recently had the pleasure of reading Darren Brown's latest book, Notes from a Fellow Traveller, and I was really struck by the amount of interesting material there is in there, not in terms of tricks, but in terms of advice. And one of the things that I was particularly struck by was the amount of post-show analysis that he and his team do after every show. You would think when he's doing these great long runs that basically after the first few shows that basically the act as it is gets bedded in and that's that you just go through the not go through the motions exactly but you know what you're doing and everything stays pretty much the same with the old perhaps minor tweak but it would appear from what Dar Darren has explained in his book that that's not always the case and that they are constantly re-evaluating what they're doing and judging from the audience reaction, which is always the best way, I guess, to see whether things are going right or not, whether they need to change anything. And sometimes it's led them to remove entire routines or to make other major changes to the running order or other aspects of the show in order to try and get it to the absolutely ultimate pitch of perfection. And this idea of post-show analysis it, it's a good one to to consider yourself isn't it i mean we, none of us are in the probably in the same situation as Darren, where we're nightly in front of large audiences and trying to live up to uh, in his case an extremely high reputation with the paying public who come to see him but nevertheless there's a, can be a lot to be gained by having a think about what you're doing when you do it and trying to see whether there's anything you could improve or if something has gone wrong, finding out why it's gone wrong or why it didn't register as well as you thought it had. Now, there are different ways that you could do this. Uh, one friend I know, he every time he performs, he doesn't perform that much, but every time he does, he tries to film it because then he can watch it back afterwards and he can assess whether what he's doing is up to scratch and whether he can improve anything. He likes to think about what he does a lot in any case. So for him in particular, this is a really good thing to do. But I think being able to sit back and watch your show again, to hear the audience reaction to, sometimes if the camera's in amongst the audience, to hear on the audio any comments that the audience might make can be very revealing. And it's a very good way to dispassionately, when you're watching a video, look at what you do and assess it you know when you're actually doing the show you can think about it afterwards and that's that's good too but without video backup of course your memory of how things went or what you said or what you actually did your memory may not be as clear as you think it's going to be afterwards 
So having a video record is a very good way to see exactly what you did. Uh, and my, certainly my experience has been when I've done this, I, I do obviously a lot of recording of videos for magicians. And sometimes when I record something, I think, oh, I don't think that, that wasn't, that didn't come across very well. And then when I watch it, I think, oh, actually it looks a lot better than I thought it did. It, it, it is okay. Um, whereas, and sometimes the opposite is true, oh, that went well, and then you notice that actually what you've done is not as good as you thought it was in your memory. So certainly having some sort of a video reference point to look back at a show afterwards is great. Failing that, maybe um, just record audio. If you're using a microphone or have anything where you that you can record on to get what you say uh, played back to you afterwards, again, is a very good way to see whether things are going right or not. Once again, if you have a microphone that is picking up the audience reaction, that will tell you where the, the moments in your patter where you get a strong laugh or round of applause, or you'll know in what, in, by what you're saying where in your act that is, of course, so you don't actually have to necessarily see it to judge that reaction. And it will also point up to you whether you have any irritating verbal tics, whether you use the word like six times in every sentence or something of that nature. So it's a really good way having an audio and it's also easy to, to do to get an audio track made for you on anything really on your phone even just leave it on your tabletop and that will pick up most that you need and then listen to it again and see whether the timing of your gags or the speed of your delivery of your patter is right. Because I think that's that's one thing that certainly in, in my case, I'm often guilty of. When I perform, I'm getting excited. Then I sometimes speak too fast. And and I think when you speak too fast, if you make a, use a good line or you make a gag and it doesn't register as well as you thought it should or might, then often the reason is because they didn't quite hear it especially if you're working for people who perhaps are older and have got impaired hearing in some way, they need longer to process it, they need a clearer sound. Well, if you're rushing through your patter and you're not getting reactions, it's probably because they didn't catch what you said. So having an audio recording is a really good way afterwards to listen back to it, perhaps when you're driving along in the car or something like that, and see whether you can pick up anything that either you say or places where the reaction is either better than you thought or not as good as you thought and make changes accordingly. So I think post-show analysis, really good thing to do if you can train yourself to do it and do it in the proper way. I mentioned earlier in this podcast about the, the get-togethers that I have with my three magic buddies, Stuart Bowie, Chris Payne and Paul Prager. And there's another guy as well who is also a very, very long-standing friend and who I've been in close contact with for decades, right from when he was very young. And that's Jay Fortune, who these days lives in Blackpool. And Jay is one of the most creative people that I know, not just magically. And to be honest, his magical career has sort of, in some ways, almost come to an end because he's always been a very talented artist and having done magic professionally and in many ways burnt out over a number of years, he decided to stop doing shows. And more recently, he's turned back to his artwork and has now created a very successful business in marketing and selling his wonderful 
paint and pencil and crayon creations. He is one of these people who, who thinks a lot about what he does, whether it's magic or whether it's art. And recently he's decided to start releasing something he calls the Dream Makers Manifesto. And basically what it is, he's, going, he's writing a series of blog posts in which he's explained to people how you can turn Id your ideas and your, your dreams into reality and actually get paid for doing something that you really love. And it's a very interesting idea because he has a lot of his own personal experiences to draw on, having been, as I say, an extremely creative person over the years. Uh, he's been involved in all sorts of different business ventures as well, both magic related and others. And so when he talks, it really is worth listening. And this Dream Makers Manifesto, which is in its early stages at the moment, is a very, very interesting series of blog posts, which will take you stage by stage through how to take something that is, in many cases, perhaps a pipe dream of yours, how to make that into something more concrete and something that you can actually do something in practical terms about, rather than it just petering out and just being a dream that you never did anything about. Because I think that can be something that we're all guilty of. You know, sometimes you, you've had a couple of glasses of wine and you're chatting with people and other magicians and you, you get all excited about some idea, uh, some venture perhaps that you think might be possible, either with them or on your own. And then the next day in the cold light of day, yeah, that, yeah, I could do that, I suppose. But then life takes over and you don't do anything about it. And that's a real pity because it could have been the start of something that you would really, really enjoy and that might have been really successful. It's just that you, you didn't have a framework to wrap around the idea and any sort of goal or target setting principle in place. And what this Dream Makers Manifesto is, is designed to do is to show you stepping stones, how starting small in, in small incremental steps leading up to the big idea how you can do that, how you can make it actually work. And it is very, very interesting. So if you're the sort of person who likes to think about what you do, and I, and I hope that's many of you, then why don't you give this a, um, a try? Now you can go to substack.com forward slash at jfortune, or one word, substack.com forward slash at jfortune. I'll give you the information. You can sign up for that if it takes your fancy. And you never know. It might be the information that Jay is gradually drip feeding you. Uh, he, he does a, a new post every couple of weeks, I believe. Maybe something that will get set you on the road to doing something that you've always wanted to do, but and up to this point haven't really been able to formulate exactly how you'll go about it. Well, Listen to Jay and he may well be able to help you. For many commercial performers, when they get to December, it'll be a time when they suddenly the number of shows that they're doing increases and the frequency with which they're performing. They may be performing every day or sometimes in some cases more than once a day. And so anything that puts a stress and strain on you as a performer is going to be accentuated. One of the things that I've always had problems with is losing my voice. 
Um, this is particularly true in December when perhaps there are a lot of colds and coughs going around and you get a little bit of a sniffle or you get a bit of a tickly throat and then you throw into the mix doing lots and lots and lots of talking by doing lots of tables or groups night after night and then it puts a strain on the vocal cords to the point where sometimes if I'm not careful I will actually start to lose my voice. Now one of the bugbears, and this is, I'm sure any strolling or table hopping magician will tell you, one of the bugbears, especially at big dinner functions, is the fact that nearly all events have background music. And the background music, sometimes it's piped, but normally it'll be provided by the disco, which perhaps is going to be cranking up to full volume later on. But while people are eating the meal before they start with the dancing, then obviously they will play some background music. Of course, as anybody who has worked these events will know, the disc jockey's idea of background and our idea of background are probably not one and the same thing because for us, the background that they consider to be background is just too loud, so especially for tables that are perhaps positioned next to one of the speakers. So you, you get to the table and you realise, bearing in mind that you might have done a lot of shows or a lot of tables just that night, your voice is under strain, and then you get to a table and you realise that, oh my goodness, this, this music is just too loud. So what do you do? Well, you can try projecting across the table, but as we all know, when your voice is feeling a bit tickly, your throat's a bit tickly, your voice is a bit under stress, you, you can't project as well. It's much more difficult. And if you don't project to the far side of the table, if people can't hear what you're saying and they're struggling, they're straining, it's not relaxing for them and they're not going to be able to enjoy what you do as much. They won't respond to your gags and your lines and so on. And it, it can really kill a performance. Very difficult. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is to try and perform some tricks if you find yourself in this situation that don't require either hardly any patter or actually don't require any at all. Now this is this is very helpful. Now I'm not suggesting that you keep a whole, I mean you could, but that you have a whole selection of tricks that you only do without patter. But if you look at your repertoire, the tricks that you normally take with you, unless you're perhaps a mentalist, a table hopping mentalist who has a lot of, who needs a lot of words, a lot of the magic that regular magicians do at tables is quite visual and we might have gags and bits of business and asides and interaction with spectators which we need patter for but the actual magic itself might be visual enough to be seen without you saying hardly anything you think of something like professor's nightmare three fly sponge balls even cut and restore rope if you do that at tables and Ambitious card, another one. A lot of these tricks could be and can be done without you saying anything at all. And I find this to be very useful, especially when, for instance, you're at a table, it's towards the end of the evening, they're getting close to the end of the, the meal, and you hadn't realised, or there's no forewarning, that the band is suddenly going to start, or the disco will suddenly explode, and you're in the middle of a trick or you're just about to start a trick. Under those circumstances, if you happen to be doing or can start a trick 
that you can do without speaking. It means you can still perform. You can do Professor's Nightmare by just sort of mouthing and indicating what you want people to examine the ropes and, and then doing the visual stretch and so on. You can do all that without speaking and it allows you to finish your set with that particular table without straining your voice and without the spectators themselves struggling to hear what you're saying. So I would certainly recommend that if you haven't done this before, look at your repertoire and work out which of the tricks are visual enough and practice them so that you have a version of them that does not require patter. And if you if you do that, I think you'll, you'll be a bit more relaxed because if the music is too loud at a certain table, you can use your visual tricks. Or if the band or disco starts when you hadn't expected it really loud so nobody can hear you, again, you can segue into doing that magic and it means you won't have to just give up. So that's the end of the podcast for this time. Thank you so much for listening. I, if you're, As I assume most of you will be listening to this before Christmas, I'd like to wish you all a very happy Christmas and a great new year. And I'll see you next year for some more. Bye for now. Thank you.